Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
Let's turn to page number nine. Great. 
medicine in the hospital just itching is all and but even though it's just itching from the blood pressure medicine uh, which she really did not need but they gave her uh, but nevertheless because of that interaction or side effect they're uh, probably going to keep her till Monday is what it looks like to me and all things according to God's will and Maybe it's some much needed rest for her, perhaps, either way, or maybe a test of patience. But she'll be out of the hospital soon. Monday at the latest, surely. We'll continue to keep her in prayer, not only for her full recovery, but also uh, <clears throat> all of God's will for her life. So thank you for praying for her. Let's always keep each other in prayer. Good to see Brother Matthew sign in as well in North Carolina. Uh, our brothers and sisters in Jamaica, our brother in Korea, and our brother in New York. We've got three people lined up for baptism. Two brothers in Mexico 
that are simply just looking for water deep enough to be baptized. And that's the only thing holding them back at this moment. And then we're just waiting for a date and time for the brother in New York State as well. So three guys lined up. So hopefully within this next week here, hopefully within these next seven days, we'll have three more baptisms. And we see God moving. Amen. Amen. We see God moving, calling people to himself. And it's exciting. Amen. Praise God. So, without any further delay, let's go in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of rest and worship and gathering together other like-minded people around the world. Thank you, Father, for the ability to do this and for the calling to do this. But we do it not only by commandment, but because we willingly join in with you, Father, with you, your people, the calling. We agree and willingly submit to you, Heavenly Father. We want to hear your word. We need instruction. We want instruction. We want to learn. We thirst and crave for your word, for your instruction, for your commandments, for your way of life, for what the truth really is. So we willingly bow to you and confess with our tongue, with our mouth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. Praise God. We ask you, Father, for your special anointing on these worship services, this sermon, this message, this teaching. Please help the people that are weak in understanding and weak in faith to learn, to grow, and to understand. We lift up to you our sister Karen in Alabama that's in the hospital, as well as those people that suffered from the wildfires, church members in Nigeria recently, and other sick members and members under distress in whatever nation that they be. You see them, you know where they're at, what they're going through, and their needs, and we lift them up to you for your consideration of their troubles. We are thankful that you're able to see and to know and understand our troubles all around the world, that you are not blind to our problems, but that you will deliver us, that you are the amen, the final word, the alpha and the omega, and you are faithful to finish the work that you have started in us. We praise you for all of it. Submit unto you and accept your help in this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Amen. Praise Jesus. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. For the people that's joining us for the first time, we're reading from the Alpha and Omega Bible, which is a restoration of the original scriptures using the Dead Sea Scrolls and other ancient manuscripts Older manuscripts, older Bibles, older scrolls, 
than what was used to translate the King James and the NIV and New American Standard and other translations. Using the oldest manuscripts that we can find, piecing it together one piece at a time and continuing to perfect this publication, this translation, as well as the cross-references and the study notes, continuing to perfect it on a continual basis, week after week after week. Last year was our seventh year anniversary of the Alpha and Omega Bible, seven years of working on this Bible. So we continue to work on it on a constant basis, and we'll continue to update the paperbacks as well as the PDF and the eSword program version of it and the audio version of this Bible as well. A lot of work to do. Uh, we still hope to uh, publish the man's book in the upcoming month. I've said that I don't know how many months, probably a year now. Next, this month, this month, next year, you know, this month or next month, constantly, forever. One of these days, the man's book will be completed. Please pray for that. And then another new book, which I have not uh, talked about the details of, and I guess will continue to be a surprise for you <laughs> because we've got to move on to the sermon. But hopefully two books coming out soon. So there's so much work to do and we need more committed people that will work the work and put the work of God as a very high priority in their lives. We need people that are willing to surrender their lives to God. We need to pray for hard workers for this harvest. There's a lot of work to be done, lots of work. And that's why I can't just push out things left and right. I've got, it takes time. No. Um, <clears throat> Before we get into the sermon, one more thing is that I did rewrite the article on the homeopathic medicine, and that's been uploaded to the website now, a completely new article, completely redone, completely fresh about the homeopathic medicine. And what you're going to see, and I, I ask you to please wait until after the sermon is finished to read that article, maybe later on in the day, tomorrow, whatever. Please don't be reading it during the sermon. We have to be focused on the message of today. But when you read that article, you're going to notice that I'm completely reverse, or for the most part at least, reverse my thinking and my teaching about it. I'm no longer really encouraging the homeopathic remedies at all because it's not logical. And the teaching of homeopathic medicine is that you take a, a what they call a mother tincture. In other words, a very strong dilution, or not dilution, but a very strong uh, key, basically, <clears throat> of whatever the original uh, herb is, or perhaps an animal, or insect, or mineral, 
and take that and soak it in alcohol or apple cider vinegar for a long time. And it comes out to a very strong herbal remedy. And that's what we need to focus on. But the problem with the homeopathic medicine is if they take that very strong remedy and then they take only one drop of it, only one drop of that tincture, of that herbal remedy, and add it to a lot of drops of water or alcohol, and then continue to dilute it over and over again. If the, homo if the homeopathic remedy says on the label 6X, X is the Roman numeral for 10. And what that means, 610, is they have taken one drop of the tincture and added it to 10 drops of water or alcohol. And then they take only one drop of that after they shake it up. They take only one drop of that already diluted mixture and add it to another tube or container of 10 drops. And then they take only one drop of that and they put it in a third container. Then they take only one drop of that and add it to a fourth container, then a fifth, and then a sixth container. Only one drop of each one, continuing to dilute it every time. And if it says 30C, C is a Roman numeral for 100. So instead of adding that one drop to 10 drops of water, they're adding the one drop to 100 drops of water. And if it says 30C, then they're doing that 30 times. 30 times dilution to 100 drops of water or alcohol. So it's extremely, extremely, extremely diluted. And then they even have like 300 C and, uh, and then even M towards 1,000 times and so forth. So it's extremely diluted. And not only that, but also they're claiming that it is stronger, more potent than the greater dilutions. So the more diluted it is, supposedly, the stronger it's going to be and more potent, more powerful. Potent equals powerful. That's what the word means for your body. That's stupid. That's yeah. foolishness. That's ridiculous. So as I continue to read it, read about it, study about it over time, and continue to read books and websites about it, the more that I started seeing more red flags. And so I don't believe that that's the way that we should go, but rather using the original Mother tincture, the strong uh, remedy that contains all of the herd would be more beneficial for us. And there's more information there as well. And not only that, but connecting another article I had written years ago, connecting about medicine and the Greek word for pharmaceutical and connecting the information together and a missing piece of the puzzle.
Now, I still believe that God laid it on my mind and heart about homeopathic medicine for us to study it, for us to learn about it, and for us to use certain elements of it, knowledge of what herb to use, and how to look up your symptoms to find what herb you need, but just not dilute it. Okay, so we're still using knowledge from that, but not diluting it to that extreme. So it's still very useful information, what we have already learned about it, and what we are continuing to learn about it. Some people will automatically doubt me much more because I have reversed course on it, because I changed my mind on it. People will doubt me more now, simply because I learned more about it and changed my mind. But the reality is that you're never going to find in your entire lifetime, even if you lived another 100 years on top of what you have already lived in your life already. You're not going to find a perfect person for a pastor. It doesn't exist. And I'm still learning, and you're still learning, and we're learning together. So I appreciate your patience and your understanding as we learn together and as we all continue to make mistakes and learn and grow and change our thinking about things. I've said many times over the years, and will always continue to say, that if we're not allowing God to change our mind, if we're not allowing God to change our way of thinking, then we are not growing. We have to be adaptable. We have to allow God to continue to work in us and change our way of thinking. I was always in support of homeopathic medicine, always, until now. So I thought I was being led by God to believe in homeopathic medicine much more, much stronger. But actually, God was leading me to study the homeopathic medicine and to bring it up with you so that we would understand it better, so that we would understand how foolish it is and how actually God is leading us to use strong remedies, tinctures, rather than the weak tinctures or dilutions. That's enough of that for right now. I just wanted to let you know that the article has been rewritten and is available for you at your convenience. But please be patient to let's now refocus ourselves on what the message for today is truly about. And that's the Holy Days. It's only a little bit more than one week away that we're going to have the Fiesta of Trumpets. The Fiesta of Trumpets is on Monday, September the 26th. So, that's one week and two days, or one week and a day. 
that's right around the corner. And there's a lot of new people in the ministry and new people coming every day and every week and every month. So we need to talk about these holy days. Now your typical pastor out there in the world and your typical Christian out there in the world they all, for the most part, most of them believe that the holy days and the Sabbaths and all of the law of God is completely done away with. We don't have to keep the Sabbath. In fact, you can just pick any day you want to as your own Sabbath, as if you're God. You pick whatever day, that's what they say. Or not even pick a day. You don't have to have a Sabbath. And I've heard it said, that the New Testament never says that the Sabbath still remains to this day. And it's a total lie. It is a lie. We're going to read it right here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Now, we're reading from the Alpha and Omega Bible, but you can get the truth even from the King James or any translation out there. You can hear the truth. I learned the truth of the Sabbath when I was using the King James for decades. But as we continue to learn and to grow in the truth and be adaptable to allow God to change the way we look at things, then we must also allow him to bring us to a better translation as well, realizing that there's corruption in all of the translations, all of them. So we're learning, we're growing, and we want the truth, and we want the whole truth, and we want the most accurate translation. So as we read in Hebrews 4, verse 1, Therefore, let us fear it, while a promise remains, of entering his rest. I want you to underline the word remains there. A promise remains of entering his rest. Any one of you may seem to have come short or fall short of it. Let us fear. It said. It started out with his fear. In other words, I think we need to add a cross-reference to this verse, wherever it may be, to the verse that says, let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Amen? The fear and trembling that we work out our salvation, however it's worded. So, here... There is something that we must fear. In other words, there's something that we need to really think about and be careful about. Now, your typical Christian and pastor will claim most of the time that the rest that it's talking about is that we must accept Jesus and therefore rest from all works and all law. That is the claim by most Christians and most pastors and churches and denominations. 
that the word rest means no works, no law, just accepting Jesus and just lay on the couch and do nothing. You don't have to work for God. You don't have to have good works. You don't have to keep the Sabbath, the holy days. There is no law. Just do whatever you want to do. But do whatever you want to do is actually the very well-known and very well-documented motto of Satanists. That's right. Do as you want to do is the sacred motto of Satanists. Do what you want to do. And of course, if you're an atheist as well, do what you want to do. Because there's not a commandment of God if you're an atheist and you do not believe in a commandment of God, you must do this and must not, not do something else. So that is the satanic mantra. Do what you want to do. So the fact that it talks about fear, I think, has much more than just do what you want to do. And it's much more than just accepting Christ and believing in Christ. If we read the entire Bible, then there's many things that we must do to work out our salvation with fear and trinity. Amen. James, who wrote the book of James, which was the blood brother of Jesus Christ. That's right, he had brothers and even sisters. Come on now. Back then, 2,000 years ago, they had a lot of children. They had lots of little boys and girls in every house. It wasn't like we see today, people with no children. No, that was not the case back then. If you didn't have any children back then, it was a shame. It was a disgrace. It was considered a curse from God. If you didn't have children back then, something was wrong with you. You must be a sinner. God's not blessing you. God's cursing you. They had lots of children, and the more children you had, the more that he was considered blessed by God. So James, the blood brother of Jesus, wrote that faith without works is dead. Being alone by itself, faith all by itself without works is dead. In other words, useless. But yet, your typical Christian, your typical pastor will say that faith is all you need and no works. But if you try to have good works, then you're competing against the blood of Christ and making the blood of Christ vain. That's what a Baptist preacher told me, straight to my face, that baptism and other works, if you try to do anything of yourself, then that is competing against the blood of Christ and making the blood of Christ vain. But yet James, who wrote a book of the Bible and, one, and was one of the apostles and disciples of Jesus Christ as well as his own blood brother, said that faith alone without works is in vain. The exact opposite of what that Baptist preacher told me. The exact opposite. I guess he's never read the book of James. Oh, yeah, he has, but it just blew right through his mind. In one ear and out the other. Amen? Amen. 
His rest is not just believing and having faith in Christ. The whole context of this chapter is talking about the example of the Israelites in the wilderness after they left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, was wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and did not trust God to feed them and take care of them and protect them in battle and trials and tribulations. And they would not rest. They wanted to work on the Sabbath and on the holy days because they thought if they, thought if they did not work on the Sabbath and holy days, that God wouldn't take care of them. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? How many times have people told me and told you that if they didn't work on the Sabbath, that they would be homeless, they would lose their job, and so forth, which very rarely ever happens, by the way. But people don't trust God. That if you obey him, he'll take care of you. That's the context of this chapter. Is rebellious, lawless people not trusting God in the wilderness. But we need to be able to enter a rest of assurance. That's the rest is talking about. The assurance that God will take care of you if you obey him. Even if you did lose your job, he will still take care of you, either give you a better job or some other way of surviving and getting through. He will take care of those people that obey him, one way or another. Let's keep reading. Verse 2, for indeed... We have had good news preached to us, even as they also had good news preached to them. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So united by faith. Underlined united by faith. So we need to add a cross-reference to James there. Amen? Because that's what I just talked about, is that faith and the works must be combined. You've got to have both. You've got to have the works and the faith united. You have to have both, not just one or the other. So that also reminds me of uh, John chapter 4, I think it is, that says that, that God is seeking a people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. So spirit is faith and truth is works. Amen? Both spirit and truth. Amen. Not just faith alone. Verse 3, for, for we who have committed enter that rest, just as he has said, quote, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And yet his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, what works were finished from the foundation of the world? Ask yourself that question for a moment. What works 
were finished from the foundation of the world. Was it the law, the Sabbath, the holy days, the Ten Commandments? No, because if they were finished and done and complete and done away with <laughs> when he created heaven and earth, then why did he command it, at, command it all those thousands of years of the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai and all of that? It's not talking about the law. It's talking about he rested on the seventh day, that he finished the creation at that time. Amen. So it says, verse 4, for he has said somewhere, some verse, somewhere is another. He couldn't remember <laughs> where it was. <laughs> that was concerning the seventh day that Theos in the seventh day did rest from all his works. How did he rest? He stopped working on the seventh day. God himself kept the Sabbath. Amen. Verse 5, and again in this verse, they should enter my rest. Well, entering my rest in the context of even God keeping his own Sabbath, that there it's, it's defining, it's telling you what it's talking about. Entering the rest is not just believing in Christ, but it's keeping the Sabbath. That's what it's saying. Amen? How much more clear can you get? This is simple. God rested on the seventh day, and he also wants you to enter that same rest day. But some people did not enter. It says in verse 5, they shall not enter my rest. In other words, they were, they were lawless, they were rebellious, and they did, did not enter into the promised land. You know what? That's really what it's talking about now. In verse 5, that they did not enter into the promised land because the promised land was a land of rest. Because the Bible says that Joshua gave the people rest after they had crossed the Jordan River, after the 40 years was done, and they did not have to wander around in the wilderness anymore and it was no longer in the desert, but entered into the land of milk and honey. After 40 years in the desert, they entered into the land of milk and honey, into the promised land, and Joshua gave them rest, the Bible says. So when... People do not rest on the seventh day and do not gather together for worship during these sermons over the internet or phone or in person. They're not going to receive the promise of paradise, which is going to be our rest. Amen? Paradise will be our rest. After the thousand years plus the one hundred years, 
paradise will come to earth. All of the earth will be the garden of Eden restored upon the entire earth. And that will be our rest. And we're not going to enter that rest of paradise, the promised land, unless we enter into the rest of the Sabbath. That is what it's saying here. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience and unbelief. So there are two things there, disobedience and unbelief. Unbelief meaning not having faith, and disobedience meaning not keeping the law of the Sabbath. Amen? Both spirit and truth, works and faith combined, united together. Verse 7, he again specifies, notice how that's not past tense, but current tense. He specifies a specific day. Not pick a day, not choose a day, and not don't worry about it. But rather, he specifies, he's very specific about a specific day. Amen. But it says today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it has been said before, quote, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So he's saying two things here. He's saying not only a specific day of the week, but also in your current time frame. Not waiting until the next life. Not waiting to the future. Not waiting to next year or the next life. Not delaying. But rather, right now, in your current life, right now, surrendering to God. Not making excuses. Not waiting until the next job or the next season or the next semester. But now, to obey God. Amen. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Jesus had given us a rest day, a different day, would he not have spoken of another day after that? <laughs> Amen. All these Christians and Sunday churches pastors saying he gave us a different rest day. He gave us Sunday rather than Saturday. But this says that if he had given us a different day, he would have said so. He specifies a specific day. If he had given us a different day, he would have said so. When he rose from the dead, he didn't go back to heaven immediately the same day. He walked on earth another 40 days. 40 days over a month. And a lot of people saw him and talked to him. At any time, he could have said, and would have said, if it had been the case, he would have said at any time in 40 days, over a month, oh, by the way, there's a new Sabbath, or you don't have to keep the Sabbath. But he didn't say that. He had plenty of time to say it, but he didn't say it. Amen. 
He didn't say, oh, by the way, I rose and changed the Sabbath. Never said it. Verse 9, therefore there remains a keeping of the Sabbath. Amen. How much more simple can you get? The Sabbath remains. Now, I believe it's, I don't know what translation. Some of the translations say, instead of the word Sabbath here in verse 9, it uses the word rest. And that's what confuses people. But the fact is, yeah, the King James uses the word rest. The fact is, the King James Version translators and any other translation that uses the word rest in verse 9 is on purpose, on purpose, changing the word because the Greek word there is not the word for rest, but rather is the Greek word for the keeping of the Sabbath. Look it up yourself. Don't trust me. Look it up yourself. You can buy Strong's Concordance. You can use blueletterbible.com or studylight.com or org, whatever it is. You can use an entirely different source that I've never even mentioned. Look it up for yourself and see if that Greek word is talking about the Sabbath or not. But it is. Amen. So why did they hide it? Why did they on purpose translate it wrong? Right there is a red flag. When they changed the word to a completely different meaning and corrupt it and hide it and pretend it was not there, the Sabbath still remains. What does that word remain? What does that mean? Remain. If something remains, that tells me maybe something else was taken away, but this is still there. Amen. This is pretty clear. The context of this chapter is not a removal of law but rather trusting God to provide for our needs even when we obey God in the law of the Sabbath. And that we must enter into the rest of the Sabbath day and into the rest of faith knowing that God will provide and not having to be over-anxious about what would happen to us if we trust God to provide for the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath and rest on the Sabbath. Amen. So it's a mental rest, but it's also a physical rest. Let's go over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Page 129. Page 129. Acts 2, verse 1. While people are turning the pages, I get me a sip of good old sweet tea. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. When? 
What time frame? What's the context? The time frame and context is after Jesus had not only been resurrected from the dead, but the 40 days were passed and another 10 days as well, 50 days total had passed from the time of his resurrection. So 53 days after his crucifixion. And here it is, even though he already died and rose again and even went back to heaven already, the whole church is gathered together on the holy day of the Pentecost. 50 days, 53 days after the crucifixion. So, think about that. If these churches are right, that we don't have to keep the Pentecost, we don't have to keep any of God's holy days and Sabbaths, then why is the New Covenant Church 53 days after the crucifixion and even 10 days after he went back to heaven still keeping God's holidays? This is New Testament. Surely, Paul or Peter or James or somebody would have stood and said, hey, we don't have to do this no more. This is the old covenant. This is law. The law is done away with. But they didn't say any such thing. They were there. They were there all together on the holy day. Amen. How much more clear can you get? Then let's go to chapter 20 which is years later, years later. I don't know how many years later without looking at us, but this is multiple years later because the, the book of Acts is the history of the first century church, and it goes through on multiple years of time frame. We get to chapter 20 years later, verse 16, Acts 20, verse 16. For Paulos which we call Paul now, had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia. But he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of Pentecost. Oh, it gives a year in the footnote there, 57 to 59 AD. So let's just say 57 minus 33, the year that we believe that he was crucified and went back to heaven, 33. So 57 minus 33 is 24 years after the crucifixion. 24 years. That's two and a half decades almost. And then if it's even in the year 58 or 59, then you definitely have a full two and a half decades. Decades! More than one decade, two and a half decades after the crucifixion and resurrection, Paul is still trying his best to be at the appointed place on the holy days. Come on now. Come on now. Amen? This is easy. Surely after 25 years, Paul or Peter or James or Luke or somebody would be like, hey, we don't have to do this no more. 
But he was hurrying to make for sure that he, if, if at all possible, that he would be there for the holy day. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 7, page 180. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. And this is Paul writing to the church in the city of Corinth. So that's why it's called the Corinthians, is because Paul is writing to the Corinthian congregation. So verse 7 says, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, clean out the old leaven. The word, the word leaven is talking about yeast within the bread dough, and it's a symbolism for sin, because just like the yeast tufts up with, with air and gases inside the bread dough, Sin does that to us, causes us to be puffed up with pride and vanity and so forth, and rebellion. So clean out the old leaven, meaning get rid of the sin, so that you may be a new mass of dough, a new person, just as you are in fact unleavened, meaning you are becoming without sin. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sanctified. Oh, sacrifice, sacrifice. Thank you, Brother Gerald. So, he's saying that as we prepare for the holy days, let's go through this process of repenting and examining ourselves and removing sin from our lives on a continual basis. Verse 8, therefore, let us celebrate the Feast or the fiesta, not with the old leaven, but with the leaven, of the, and nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, he's saying, let us not be hypocrites. Let us continue as we keep the holy days, not do so just in the letter of the law, just with the outward appearance, but also with the spirit of the law with the inward heart and sincerity and getting the sin out of our life. Every Passover season in the spring, March, April, in that time area, we prepare for the Passover in the days of unleavened bread by removing the yeast and other leavening products from our house, the things that we would normally eat that have yeast in it or other leavening products within those bricks. So we finish eating up the bread, the cornbread and stuff like that, and the donuts, and we stop buying it a few days before that or a week or so before that so we can use it up so that there's no more of those products in the house. And for a whole week, we fast from leavened cakes Red, red products. So 
that represents that we are removing the leavening of sin from our life as a lesson. It is a lesson. It's teaching us to think about what sin in our life we need to get rid of. And many times when we're doing that week of unleavened bread, we find something we forgot about. Something in the back of the refrigerator, something in the back of the cupboard, the shelf, whatever. And we're like, oh, no, I forgot about this. Well, I didn't realize that was there. And then we throw it away. Well, that's the way sin is in our life, that some things are not very clear, very evident. There are hidden sins that we don't understand is sin or that we have not yet come to the truth about or we've not yet repented of. Maybe a sin that we do know is a sin that we continue to struggle with. So those, that particular Holy Day helps us to continue examining ourselves and repenting of our sins. So the Holy Days are very useful, very useful. And such things are not done away with by the blood of Christ. When Christ was crucified and resurrected, did he want us to stop repenting? Of course not. Does he want us to stop examining the sin in our life and trying to get rid of it? Of course not. The spirit of the law of the holy days, the principle of the holy days, the reason of the holy days still exists. We still need to repent. We still need to remove sin from our lives continually year after year after year. So we keep the holy days year after year after year because we have to keep having a reminder. Amen. We need a reminder to keep repenting and keep examining ourselves and not allow the pride to creep in and the vanity and the rebellion and false doctrines and so forth. We need the Holy Ghost every year. Amen. Paul said in verse 8, let us keep doing this. Let us celebrate the peace. And this, again, was decades. Now, if Acts 20 was 24 years later, then this is probably 30, 40, or 50 years later because Corinthians was written after Acts. So this is even longer, even years past that. And yet, Paul is telling the Corinthian church to keep the holy days. Amen. This is 30 or 40 or 50 years after Christ was crucified, and he's still preaching that we should keep the holy days. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the book of 1 John, which is over there next to the book of Revelation. Not the book of John, but rather the book of 1, 2, and 3 John, right there next to the book of Revelation. 1 John, chapter 3. Page 253. Page 253. Maybe with the glue that's Thing on this microphone keeps falling off every week. One John, we'll make a note, please. One John three. Page two fifty two. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Now this is John writing this, and John was Christ's best buddy, as far as we know and understand. This was his very best buddy and follower and worshipped Jesus and loved Jesus very intently. His best buddy of all his disciples of his lifetime. 1 John 3 verse 4, everyone who commits sin also commits transgression of the law. That means breaking the law. For sin is transgression. Sin is breaking the law. Now again, this is even decades after that, after Corinthians, as far as I know. This is a long time after the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And John's, I mean, and, and, but yet the best, most devoted follower of Christ the best, most devoted follower of Christ is telling us that if we break the law of God, that is what sin is. That is the definition, the biblical definition of sin. He didn't say, my Lord, my Master Jesus did away with all law. He didn't say that. Sin is the definition, I mean, this is the definition of sin, breaking the law. So if there is no law, then there is no sin. Amen? If there is no law, if law is done away with by the blood of Christ, then no man can sin. There is no sin because the law is done away with. Because sin is breaking God's law. This is easy stuff. Amen? If sin, if there is still sin, then there, there, is, then there must still be law. Some law. Amen? Now don't get me wrong. I know that Paul made it clear, thankfully, that the circumcision, the law of circumcision, is done away with by the blood of Christ. Because when we reach those pearly gates, he's not going to be checking out our testicles and our balls and our peanuts. We don't have to mutilate ourselves in order to enter heaven or paradise. Amen? That wouldn't be logical, really. And the unclean meats of pork and shrimp and stuff like that. People have been taught that pork was unclean in the Old Testament because it's unhealthy. That's a lie. Pork is not any more unhealthy than what chicken or turkey or beef is. They all have worms when it is not cooked. They all have parasites when it is not cooked. They are all nasty and unclean health-wise when it's not cooked. Nah. But when you cook it, 
It don't matter if it's beef, chicken, or turkey, or pork, or fish, or shrimp. All the worms, all the parasites, all the germs, all the bacteria, if you cook it well enough, is dead. The law of the clean and unclean meats in the book of Leviticus, chapter 11, had nothing to do with health. It had everything to do with symbolism and only symbolism of the Gentiles and the Israelites. The Israelites in that day of time would consider the Gentiles as being dogs. That you could not eat an unclean animal, a dog. So it was a symbolism of a separation of tribes and races and nations because the Gentiles did not worship God for the most part. There was exceptions, like Luke. He was a Gentile, but yet he was a follower of God. Amen. So there was exceptions. But in general, it was mostly the Israelites that was serving God. And so they would look down upon the Gentiles and call them dogs and unclean animals. It was a symbolism. But now that Christ died for our sins, the gate is open more so, more than ever before, for more Gentiles, even though the gate was always open for the Gentile converts, always. That's absolutely clear in the Old Testament. People don't realize that. Because your typical Babylonian pastor wants you to believe that the law of God and the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath and the Holy Days, that these were just Jewish things, just for the Jews. But that was never the case, ever, ever. The Holy Days and the Sabbath and the law of God was never just for the Jews. Never. The Bible never says any such thing, ever. as total ignorance of the Bible. There were always Jewish, I mean, uh, Gentile converts, always. But under the New Covenant, the gate was made more available, the doorway, Jesus, was made more available to the Gentiles. And now we're living in the time that the Bible calls the time of the Gentiles. We have more church members of this congregation in Algeria than any other nation on earth. Even though we're not based in Algeria, we're based coming out of America, but we have more members in Algeria and other uh, nations of Africa, and then we have a brother in Korea and so forth. And then we've got two brothers waiting for baptism right now in Mexico and so forth and many other examples. So there's more Gentiles in the church today than what there are Israelites. Because most Israelites, most white people, are not committed to God very much. And there, there, we have more internet, more TV, more movies, more video games. There's so many and more college and more money 
and more all these different things that hinder the white race from committing themselves to God and seeking God. So many different hindrances in the Western society, more than Africa. So the African people and other Gentiles around the world uh, seem to be definitely uh, have a better, stronger craving for the Word of God and for the truth. Now, let's move forward. Let's go to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Romans 3. Verse 31, page 166. Romans 3, verse 31, page 166. Romans 3, verse 31. And this is Paul writing to the church at Rome. And it says, Do we then nullify or make void the law through faith? Well, if you were to ask Baptist preacher, do we make void the law through faith? He would say, absolutely, yes. But Paul said, no. May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. In another place, he said, the law is good and holy. Amen. Many people misunderstand the writings of Paul because many times Paul did criticize how that people in that day and time were being legalistic and putting too much focus on the law. And so he spoke against uh, legalism, too much focus on the law. And so people misinterpret that to think that Paul was totally 100% against law. But he wasn't. You have to read not only some verses of Paul, but rather all the verses that Paul wrote. And he wrote repeatedly that the law is good and holy. We establish the law. We keep the law. We keep the holy days, and so forth. You got to read all of it, not just some. Of it. Amen. Let's go to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter two. And again, there is a difference between old covenant law of temporary, ceremonial, symbolic law of foreskin and meats and the sacrificing of animals for sin. Those laws absolutely are done away with by the blood of Christ because we don't need an animal anymore to teach us about sin. Jesus became the Passover lamb, the lamb of God, for us. So he is teaching us about sin rather than us needing to have a farm and raise sheep and kill sheep every time we say a cuss word. 
Come on now. So there are some laws done away with, but the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Christ did nothing to do away with the Ten Commandments and the Holy Days. We see how the church continued to keep the Sabbath and the Holy Days decades after the crucifixion. The blood of Christ does not erase a date on the calendar. The Holy Days is a date on the calendar that we must worship God and rest and take a day off and reflect upon God and fellowship with one another and spend time for God. I mean, come on, we've been spending time for everything else all week long. It's time to spend a day for God. Amen. I don't know why it says that uh, people are no longer listening. Let's see. Can somebody other than Matthew let me know if you can still hear me? Oh, no. Seems like the broadcast ended somehow. Somebody other than Matthew, or even Matthew, can use your name. What happened? Lord have mercy. God help us, Father. Doesn't seem like we're broadcasting. It says this event has ended. Stay tuned for the next. So I'm going to have to start a new broadcast. Thankfully, we got talk show recording, so we can use the talk show recording. But I've got to give people time to find that the audio is picked back up. Give people time. So I don't know what happened. Sorry about that. I don't know why it stopped broadcasting. So we're going to give a minute for everybody to uh, pick back up on the broadcast here, okay? So I see that Matthew is still signed in, Andrew is signed in, um, I don't know what happened, but I know we're, we're back. We're back now, but we're going to give people time to find the broadcast again, okay? So we're probably, we're going to, 
And there's Kareem. Okay, so I don't know what happened, but we're going to pick back up here in a second, okay? It's not being disconnected for very long because I just got an email giving me the stats. So I don't know why it disconnected. I'm sorry for that. But I don't think it was disconnected for very long at all. Okay, so everybody is coming back in. There's, there's Decipher from Korea. He's in here now. So we're giving time for everybody to get back into the broadcast. Should take only a few more seconds. There's two more people coming back into the broadcast. So just letting everybody know that I don't know why the broadcast ended, but we're back online now. Seems like everybody's back. Maybe maybe one more person we're still waiting for, I believe. And we'll pick back up where we left off. Okay. Thank you for your patience. There's that next person there. So I think everybody's back now for the most part. Okay, so sorry for that interruption. The devil's fighting us strong. Okay, so let's go to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. I don't think anybody missed very much there. But we do have a recording over on TalkShoe, and that's still recording. So if anybody wants to later on uh, see if they missed it, <clears throat> we was only off the air, I think, for a minute or less, as far as I know. But if anybody ever wanted to look at the talk show recording later in the week to listen to the whole thing again and see if you missed out anything, then that's available. The talk show recording will be available to where you can catch up if you if you did um, miss out on anything that will be available for you at your option and at your convenience. But right now, let's go to the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Colossians 2, verse 16 says, but let no one condemn you in regard to meat or alcohol or, the, or in respect to a fiesta or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are the, the foreshadowings, talking about prophetic foreshadowings, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now your typical Christian, your typical pastor, believes that this means that we can just pick a day and that we should not judge people for keeping Sunday. They, they, think, they think it means that. But that's not logical. That doesn't make any sense. Especially in the context of all the other verses we've already read and everything that the Bible teaches. The fiesta is talking about the fiesta of God. Amen? And it talks about the new moon and the Sabbath. So it's not saying, don't let anyone judge you or condemn you for keeping a pagan holiday, which is what Sunday is. Sunday is a pagan holiday. 
just like Saturday, the Sabbath, is God's weekly holiday. It is a holiday. Sabbath, the Sabbath, every Saturday is a weekly holiday, a day of commanded rest and worship. It is a holiday from work. It is a celebration. It is a feast. It is a fiesta every Saturday. Sunday competes against the Sabbath. Sunday is competing against God. Sunday is competing against the blood of Christ. Amen? Sunday is competing against the body of Christ and the teachings of Christ and the commandments of Christ and everything that is Christ. Sunday is in competition too. It's not saying don't let anybody condemn you for keeping the pagan holidays. It's not saying that. That would be ridiculous. We should condemn for pagan holidays. Amen? The fact that it talks about the Sabbath and the new moon tells us that it's saying to us, the people of God that do keep the new moons, that do keep the Sabbath, that do keep God's fiestas, to not allow anyone to condemn us. It says the exact opposite of what your Sunday preacher teaches. The exact opposite. The exact opposite of what that preacher says is what this says. The Sunday preacher is condemning us for keeping the Sabbath. He absolutely does condemn us for keeping the Sabbath and the holy days, saying that we're competing against the blood of Christ. And that is contradictory to what this says. This is telling us to not allow them to condemn us for obeying God. And not only that, but also to not allow them to condemn us for the drinking of alcohol on the holy days and eating the pork on the holy days or any other time. But that we have the liberty of God, the freedom and the rights of what God has given us to enjoy life, to allow the wine or the vodka, Brother Matthew, to, <laughs> to have a merry heart. Amen? To enjoy life. It's okay to enjoy life. Amen. It's not a sin to enjoy life. It's not a sin to enjoy a glass of wine, a beer, a mixed drink, a shot of vodka. Come on. It's not a sin. Paul preached against legalism. Amen. If you want the new covenant teachings like they claim that they want, Paul preached against legalism. The Pentecostal preacher is not against law. He's against the law of God. The Pentecostal preacher believes in a ton of law. Thou must not drink. Thou must not look at a woman. Even if you're single, even if she's single, you must not look at a woman. You must not allow the hormones that God gave you 
and the sexual attraction that God gave you to be active. You might as well just cut off the foreskin and cut off the balls and cut off the penis because the Baptist and the Pentecostal preacher is trying to make every man out there a wimp. I should preach with passion. Amen. People get upset when I holler, when I scream, when I raise my voice. I should preach with passion. It is absolutely ridiculous what religion is doing to men. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. What that means is that beware of legalism. Amen? It means that these Pentecostal preachers believe that you should crucify the flesh literally, not enjoy life, not be a man, not have any masculinity. They believe in the law of law, but not the law of God. Paul did not say in these verses that the Sabbath, the new moon, the fiesta is done away with, but rather don't let them condemn us about these things. The exact opposite of what they say it is. Let's go to Zechariah now in the book of Prophets. Zechariah 14. It's very close, almost the last page of the book of Prophets, Zion, if you have the paperbacks. Page 204. Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, let's start in verse 16, and the context is after Jesus returns from heaven. He's going to land on the earth, and he's going to dwell and live on the earth with us. This is what the Bible teaches. The meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus will come to the earth. The exact opposite of what all those churches teach. The exact opposite. Zechariah 14, verse 16, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall be left of the nations that came against Jerusalem, talking about at the battle of Armageddon and the Great Tribulation, that the people that survived the Great Tribulation, the people that survived the Battle of Armageddon, that continued to live into the millennium, those survivals, survivors, shall even they shall even come up every year 
to worship the King, the Almighty Jesus, and to keep the fiesta of tabernacles. Amen. Right there, that proves that Jesus is God. Even in the King James that doesn't use the word Jesus, it's the Lord, the King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Who is that? That's Jesus. It still proves that he's God in all translations. Amen. But it makes it more clear in the Alpha and Omega Bible. And it's every year. Every year. Every year. And this is not talking about Old Covenant times. This is talking about after Jesus comes back to the earth for the millennium. And notice how it says all the nations. Those that are left of all the nations. So that would include Africans. Gentiles, Koreans, people of all colors, languages, worldwide, all the nations, anybody that has survived, anyone that's still alive in the millennium, all nations. How much more clear can you get about that as well? It's not for the Jews. It never was for the Jews alone. Verse 17, and it should come to pass that whosoever of all the families of the earth, again, all the families, all the tribes of the earth, shall not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Almighty Jesus, even these shall be added to the others. And if the family of Egypt shall not go up nor come, then upon them shall be the overthrow with which that Jesus will smite all the nations, whichever of them that shall not come up to keep the fiesta of tabernacles. So that's a very long-winded way of saying it. But nevertheless, it's very simple and easy to understand. Any person, any tribe, any language, any color, any race that refuses to keep the holy days after Jesus comes back and refuses to come and worship Jesus at the Fiesta of Tabernacles, and they use any excuse in the book, always too far. I don't want to go all the way across the globe to visit Jerusalem. It's too far. I got to stay home with mommy and daddy. I got to work. I got to do this. I got to do that. I ain't got the gas. Whatever the excuse is, if they don't do it, they will be struck by Jesus. They will be punished by the king. How much more simple can you get? It was never just for the Jews. So I really encourage you, the people that are still using that phrase, the holiday of the Jews, the Jews' holidays, get that phrase out of your mind, out of your heart, out of your vocabulary, because it was never the holiday of the Jews. It was never the Jews' holidays. It was always the holiday of God. In Leviticus 23, where he is listing most of the holidays, Jesus, out of his own mouth, says, these are my 
holy days. He doesn't say these are the Jews, the Jewish days. He says these are my holy days. Please stop saying the Jews' holidays. That's never what it was. Let's go to the book of Isaiah, which is the first book in Prophets, and go to chapter 66, Isaiah 66, the last page of Isaiah, page 48, page 48, Isaiah 66, The last page of Isaiah, almost the last verse. There's only one more verse after it. Verse 23. Isaiah 66, verse 23. And it shall come to pass that from one moon to another moon, and from one rest day to another rest day, that all flesh shall come to worship before me in Jerusalem. Amen? So not only Zechariah 14, but Isaiah as well. And not only tabernacles, but also every new moon and every Sabbath, every rest day, not just tabernacles, but all the Sabbaths of God, all the holy days of God, will come to worship me in Jerusalem, saith Jesus. Not say of Moses, not say of the Jews, not say of Pastor Tim, not say of Apostle Zimmerman, but say of Jesus. So am I a cult leader because I tell you what the Bible says? Just because I'm different from all these ignorant pastors that don't know the Bible? This is very clearly talking about the millennium as well. Look at verse 22. But as the new heaven and the new earth, which I made, remain before me, said Jesus, so shall your seed and your name continue. And it shall come to pass that they worship me before all these holidays. In Jerusalem. So the fact that it mentions paradise, new heaven and new earth, that's paradise. The new heaven and new earth, don't ever allow anyone to try to tell you that this verse is talking about Old Covenant times. How can they claim it? But they will. They will try. They will try to distort it, to twist it. They will try. But they cannot twist this successfully because it's so clear. If it's talking about the new heavens, new earth, then the next verse is talking about the time leading up to that new heaven and new earth. There actually won't be any holidays once we get into paradise, according to Revelation 21 and 22. Because those last two chapters of the book of Revelation, they tell us that there won't be any moon or any need for the moon or any need for the sun because Jesus God himself will by at that time release 
a greater amount of his energy and presence upon the earth, and he'll be so bright that we won't need the light of the sun or the moon. And there'll no longer be any night. So you'll no longer have 24-hour periods. You'll no longer have a seven-week period. You'll never, you're, you will no longer have a month-to-month period or a year-to-year period. It would just simply be eternity. Once you get into eternity, in the new heavens and new earth, paradise, time would no longer exist. It would simply be eternity. So, when it talks about people coming to worship him every year in Jerusalem for the holy days and from month to month, it's not talking about during the time of the new heaven and earth, but rather the time just before that. This is a technique that we see throughout the Bible, that it will mention a certain period of time, and then it will go backwards in the next verse to talk about the time leading up to that. It is a pattern throughout the Bible. So following that pattern and following logic, because there ain't going to be any nights or separation of time in paradise, in verse uh, 23 connected to the context of verse 22 that leading up to that time of the new heaven and new earth is the millennium in agreement with Zechariah 14. Agreement with Zechariah 14 that makes it more clear what it's talking about. So we have not just one verse, but both of these verses that talks about after Jesus comes back, that the law of God of the holy days is still intact. And if it's still intact in the millennium, it's still intact now. It's not done away with. Amen? Now, we say that trumpets is coming up September the 26th. Monday, September 26th. On that day, that is the fiesta of trumpets, which is a foreshadowing, like Colossians 2 said, a foreshadowing of a future, a future prophetic event. Your Sunday pastor will tell you that that means it's done away with. But that does not mean that. A foreshadowing is a foreshadowing, is pointing toward a future thing. The substance belongs to Christ because the holy days belong to Christ. Amen? But it is a foreshadowing trumpets is pointing us to a future prophetic fulfillment of the blowing of the trumpets, which occurs at the seventh seal of the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you have seven seals. And each seal is like if you have a scroll, a piece of paper rolled up with the writings of God on it. The seal and the scroll, the seven seals. The seal is perhaps a stamp of clay or fabric or something that is holding the scroll 
shut. That one at a time in the book of Revelation, the seals are removed and the scroll is woken up. And as the scroll is woken up, a prophetic event occurs upon the earth. Now, the first four of those seven have already been fulfilled. The next one, the fifth seal, will be the Great Tribulation. We're almost there. It's at the door. I'm not going to say as a particular year, but at the same time, I must say this. I cannot understand people that are not confident that it will be in our lifetime. Now, of course, some people might die in a car wreck tomorrow. But you know what I mean. Our generation. I do not understand people that are not confident, 100% confident, that it's going to happen in our lifetime. But I, I also come to realize that a lot of it is people not paying enough attention to the news or maybe the wrong news. Too many people playing too many video games, too much video games, too many movies, too much entertainment, and distractions. Sports is a huge distraction for many, many people out there, men and women. Money, and a long list of distractions. But if we were to open up our eyes and read enough and watch enough of what's happening in world events, then we would realize that we saw the opening of the fourth seal. So four out of seven has been opened up. And then also, COVID, even though it was not as severe as was first predicted, COVID did and is continuing to kill people around the world, especially the elderly and people that have already pre-existing health conditions, health problems, diabetes, obesity, heart problems. If they already have health problems, then the COVID comes and it weakens them even more. And then, of course, the injections as well, the fake vaccines, are killing even more people than COVID. And that's part of the fourth seal of the pestilence and death being opened up upon the earth in connection with Islam and the World Economic Forum, Charles Schwab, Bill Gates, and people like that, and Biden, that all work in agreement and cooperation with Islam. Islam is a major part of the fourth seal. All of these New World Order people, they bow to Islam. And they promote Islam, and they cooperate with Islam. And they're all for laws against speaking against Islam. They're all for laws against speaking against Islam. 
They're all for that. So you can't make a separation between the Islamic part of the fourth seal and the death and pestilence part of the fourth seal. And the death and pestilence includes not only the COVID and monkeypox and Ebola, but also the vaccines as part of that death and pestilence. So there was a great increase upon the earth, a great increase upon the earth of death and pestilence in connection with Islam. So we can't deny the existence of the fourth seal already been woken up. In addition to that, look at what is happening with Russia, the Ukraine, China, and Taiwan. Both of those are major explosive worldwide dangers. What's happening with the Ukraine, I don't understand anyone that thinks that's going to stay limited to the Ukraine. Come on now. Open your eyes. Open your ears. Do a little research. Watch the news more. Russia and NATO have both repeatedly said many different things to the effect that this is not going to be limited to the Ukraine. Both sides have said that repeatedly. It's not going to be limited to the Ukraine. It's only a matter of time before it goes to Poland and Lithuania and Sweden and England and worldwide. Only a matter of a short period of time. We also have the Apostle Ehud in Nigeria that's a man of God that had the prophetic dream of Biden going nuclear in the Ukraine. And then you look at Taiwan and China. We know that's going to be a world war. So on both sides of the globe, again, Israel and Iran and Syria, again, also the Biden dictatorship and, and so many other things. And then there's more diseases coming out more diseases that we see being reported in the news, more diseases reported in the news every few weeks that are breaking out and killing people, and that's continuing to increase. So how much longer can all this last until we get to a point of severity in the world that it is the Great Tribulation and World War III? It ain't going to take much to get into the war between China and Taiwan and America and Japan and the Philippines. That situation is already ready to explode beyond measure. It's so at the door. And the Ukrainian situation is so much at the door of exploding to a, uh, a war across Europe which uh, a war with England and NATO and Poland and Lithuania will immediately, of course, be involved with America as well. And then North Korea showing their butts too. So it, it, it doesn't take that much faith or knowledge or understanding 
or prophetic understanding. It doesn't take much of these things to come to a very logical conclusion that we are at the door to World War III. And World War III is not going to be like World War I or World War II. World War III has many more nuclear weapons, many more jets and tanks and ships and weapons of warfare and chemical and biological. World War III is going to make World War II look like a play. Even the Bible says that the Great Tribulation will be the, the most horrible, the greatest time of trouble that has ever existed for mankind. World War III would definitely be that. So I, 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 I'm asking people to think logically and consider all these different things to consider. It's a logical conclusion that the Great Tribulation is at the door. And if we are complacent in this and think, oh, it, oh, it might be 50 years from now or 100 years from now or 200 years from now, if we're complacent like that, then we won't be ready for when it happens. It is more healthy, more spiritual, more faithful, more Christian, and more logical to think that it's at the door and be ready for it so that when it happens, that we have our supplies, a place to go, a place to run, a place to hide, and brothers and sisters to help us. Because we're not going to be able to get through this alone by ourselves. We're going to need help, and we're going to need each other. And not only in the Great Tribulation for survival that we're going to need help, but even right now, we need one another, and more than just praying for each other. We need people that we can hug in person, cry with each other in person, hold hands in person, be there for each other in person. We need brothers and sisters that we can count on and support one another, encourage one another. It's very extremely important that we grow these congregations in every region and in new regions as well. It's very important that as these new brothers become baptized, that they open up their apartments, their homes, for any new convert that might come along. And they may use the excuse that they don't know much truth yet, they're still a baby in Christ, they're still growing and learning and still got sin in their life. But the reality is this, that even I, myself, am still learning and growing and working against sin. We all are. And whether we are a babe in Christ or very old in Christ, we should open up our homes, our houses to worship with new converts, new people that's interested in the truth, and let us all grow together. And we need the other brothers and sisters to point out our sins, 
and to help us repent and to encourage one another and to provoke one another unto good works, as the Bible says. We need accountability partners. We need people that will push us and provoke us to good works. Now, concerning the holy days, trumpets, pictures, the time of the blowing of the seven seals, or the seven trumpets, which is at the seventh seal, and that prophetic fulfillment will be fulfilled on that day of trumpets of some year, whatever year it is, the seventh seal, which is actually seven trumpets, when that last seal is opened up, there will begin a process of seven trumpets, one at a time, over a period of five, six, or seven months or so, that these, these seven trumpets will blow. And as each trumpet blows, another prophetic event occurs, just like with the seals. Now, we only have a week away, so you need to go ahead tomorrow and tell your employer, your school, whoever you work for, that you cannot and will not work on the fiesta of trumpets. And go ahead, while you're at it, go ahead and tell them about the Day of Atonement and Tabernacles, the first and last day of Tabernacles, that are Sabbaths. Not every day of, of the Tabernacles is a Sabbath, but the first day of Tabernacles is a rest day Sabbath. And then the eighth day of Tabernacles, that we call the last great day, that is also a Sabbath rest day as well. And then, of course, your weekly Sabbaths that occur during that time. And then, of course, actually, to keep the Tabernacles, what you're really supposed to do by biblical commandment is to perform a pilgrimage and actually travel to a different town and gather up with the other true brothers and sisters that I know that's not available to everybody in every nation. So we only have one sister that's committed to Christ in Australia. So she don't have no brothers and sisters in Valley out there. But many different years, she has went to different places and camped to a, in a different town and different city all by herself to her, the best of her ability, not using excuses. And then other years, uh, when it was more feasible and more uh, wise to just camp in her backyard. But she's still camping, and she was still in a tent, and she was not making excuses. Uh, oh, my back hurts. Her, her back does hurt, but she wasn't using the excuse that my back hurts, therefore I cannot camp in a tent. She was faithful and remains faithful to keep the holy days to the best of her ability. Too many people in this world want to use every excuse in the book to not obey God. The people in the United States, they have a place to come here, to be with like-minded brothers and sisters, and hug and get to know one another and support one another, encourage one another, and be here in person and keep 
the commandment of the holy days and the commandment of the pilgrimage even much more complete and more in agreement with what the Bible teaches us to do. So there's really not any excuse for most Americans once they learn about the truth of the holy days. But I am lenient with new converts, new babies in Christ when they first get baptized for the first few months. I try to be lenient and understanding that my leniency can only go so far. I do expect that as you continue to grow in Christ, that your obedience to Christ and your commitment to Christ will also increase. So right now, I might accept an excuse that you're not going to travel to Tennessee even though you live right here in the United States. But when it comes Passover and the days of unleavened bread in the springtime, March or April, I'm not going to accept that excuse. I'm just telling you right now that that's months away. And by then, your commitment to Christ should be stronger and there will be no excuses for the Americans who have more resources available to them and have a church family right here in America. I do try to help people. I try to help people. It may it may be that we provide a campsite for you to where you're not going to have to pay for a motel or anything like that. You might not have to even pay for a campsite. If that's what it takes to help you to obey God, we're willing to try to help you obey God. But you also got to do your part. Your part in doing whatever you can do to commit yourself to Christ and to obey Christ and to realize that the commandments are not suggestions, but rather commandments. And the holy days are not suggestions, but rather commandments. And the pilgrimages are not su suggestions, but rather commandments, very serious commandments. Amen? What did the Bible say? If they did not travel the pilgrimage, to come worship the Lord in Jerusalem, they're going to be cursed. They're going to be smitten by God, struck by God. The same would be true in our modern time. God does not change. The Bible says that God does not change. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That's what the Bible says. If he punished people in the Old Testament, for not keeping his holidays. And he's going to punish people when he comes back for not obeying his commandments. Then he also does in the modern times as well. Amen. And he also shows some leniency 
but he also has a limit to his leadings. He does require people, expect people, to grow in their commitment to him. There will be a time when people won't show up for the holidays and will be left to destruction. There will be a time that people will be blessed for their commitment to God by protection from the great tribulation for the most part. Whereas those that do not show up for the holy days and the pilgrimage will have to suffer a greater extent and a greater severity of the great tribulation. The book of Deuteronomy, perhaps chapter 11, as well as other chapters of Deuteronomy, speak of the commandments of God as both a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey, and a curse if you do not. And this is also the theme of the entire Bible. I want to see people be happy. But the only way to true happiness and contentment and joy and a successful life is obedience to God without excuse. A few days after trumpets, we have the Day of Atonement. So you need to go ahead and tell your school and your employer that you will not be working on that day. No school work. No employment, no making money, no job interview, no restaurant, no going to the store, no long distance travel on God's holy days. We'll be having special worship services on each of these days, including trumpets on the 26th at 11 o'clock in the morning Eastern time. Now, normally, the first day of each month for the new moon, new month, worship services, those are normally not Sabbath days of rest. But this particular new moon coming up on the 26th of the month is not just a new moon, but also it's the fiesta of trumpets. So that particular day is a commanded Sabbath of rest and worship, and you should not do any schoolwork or go to school or make money or buy or sell on that day in the stores and restaurants. Okay, so I've opened up the chat room now for those people that are in Mixler to ask any questions about anything I have said today. Let's try to stay on topic of anything that I have mentioned today. If you have any questions, feel free to type it into the chat room now. And, and also, if you have any testimonies, dreams, prophecies, prophetic visions, or a testimony that you want to share, you can also type those in as well. 
Brother Gerald, you got anything to say? Anything to share, sing, or anything? Uh, the um, Sunday churches only keep Christmas and Easter as their high holy days, two days. The essence of Jesus remaining in quite long duration. Yeah. It's a testimony against those churches that they tell people not to keep and don't keep them. Yeah. And we've also witnessed Great miracles during the Fiesta of Tabernacle and other holy days, locally and around the world. Amen. Amen. The holy days are a delight. Amen. They're not a burden. People treat obedience to God as a burden, that it would be such a burden to keep God's holy days. It's not a burden. The holy days of God are a delight. They are a gift. They are a blessing. They're wonderful. We should want to have a lot larger congregation. We should want to meet our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should want a vacation. We should want a celebration. We should want to enjoy life and uh, be deeply committed to Christ and learn all the lessons of the Holy Days, everything that they symbolize and foreshadow. These are things that we should willingly not by force. It shouldn't take a threat of a curse. It should be something that we willingly do. It, salvation itself should not be just fear of hell, fear of death, and fear of the judgment of God. But salvation itself should be like, I want to love the Lord because he's good. And his ways are good, and his laws are good, and his commandments are good. And this is the way of true life. It is the way of life. You know, it shouldn't be by commandment. It should be a willing part of love for right things that we, that we want to do right. Amen. And that we would want to... Uh, have a church retreat and a time of vacation of where it's not just entertainment and carnal desire, but rather a spiritual um, enlightenment, a spiritual growth. Amen. Anything else? So we've got the month of October, November, December, January, February, and March, six months for people to save up their second tide so that they can make the trip for Passover and for the Americans, that is, and even for people outside of America to save up 
to where they can have a feast for the holy days and so forth. God makes a way financially to keep his own holy days is through the use of the second tithe that people would actually pay their tithes. And not only the first tithe, but the second tithe and the third tithe. People, if they were to pay their tithes and put God first in their finances, God would bless them and God would help them and God would make the way to make things possible. And people have got to stop making excuses and putting everything else first and everybody else first and everything, all their, everything physical first. People got to learn that the first commandment is have no other God. And when they're making excuses of work and job and money and finances, that's making those things first before God. That's breaking the first commandment. And we should want to put God first, willingly, because he loved us first. He loved us first. And he called us, specifically, you and me, he called us out of everybody else in the world, into this glorious truth, we should be willingly, joyously, leaping to obey him and serve him, knowing how much he's done for us and how special our calling is. It's a very special calling. You know, back when I was in school, I was not a jock. I was not popular or rich or wealthy and didn't have a lot of friends, and I did not enjoy sports. I was not into all that because I didn't have the role models of playing the balls and stuff. So when it came time each day for a gym class, I hated that. I hated gym. I didn't want to play ball. I wasn't accustomed to it. I wasn't used to it. And of course, the coach would say, okay, to one young man, okay, you're the head of this team, and then the other young man, you're the head of another team, and y'all pick who you want to be on your team. And I was usually almost always almost dead last to be picked for a team, of course, because I wasn't good at the sports. And that really made me feel not wanted, hated, despised, and left out. But God chose us first. God looked upon us and said, I want you. I want you to be on my team. I want you, even before the rest of these people, to be able to make it into the first resurrection rather than the second resurrection, to be first in line rather than last in line. He loved us even while we were still yet sinners and pagans, even while we were still denying him and rejecting him and disobeying him, he still said, I want you. And we owe him a debt of gratitude, a debt of love, 
a debt of appreciation and honor and respect that he is desiring us and we are not unwanted children. And he's wanting, he is wanting to promote us and not have us to be in the back of the line, but in the front of the line and to be a royal priesthood, to be important to him, the apple of his eye. This is about love, not just, not just commandment, but love. We should be desirous to give a testimony, to sing a song, to play our musical instruments. We should be desirous to participate in the services, and we should be praying how can I participate other than just logging in? Maybe I could share what I read in the Bible this week, what he spoke to me this week, how he answered a prayer for me this week. Maybe I could type that into the chat room to be encouragement to someone else when I testify of my answered prayer, of my healing, of this particular verse that God laid on my heart that meant something to me. That, that won't mean just something good to me, but it could encourage someone else as well. I encourage people to do more and participate more and chat more in the maybe group and I'm posting something, comment on it more and, and talk back and forth to each other more than what you already are doing. I know people have jobs and children and grandchildren and husbands and wives and other responsibilities. I'm not asking anyone to spend 40 hours a week on me with. I'm asking a few minutes each day. It's not that much. I'm not as, I, I, I should not have to pull tooth and nail from people, but I am. And I find myself repeating this over and over and over and over. What do I have to do to get people to talk to each other? I should give up but I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on, trying to get you to do this. But you won't. Very frustrating. Very frustrating. Oh, must I do what you command? Must I do it? It should be a heart of love, a love of a heart, whatever I'm trying to say. It should be by love that you would want to get to know your brothers and sisters more and ask, you know, I say, welcome these brothers, and you're like, welcome, and then that's it. What about, hello, I live here, and this is why I'm in the ministry, and this is who I am, and share part of yourself with these new brothers in Christ. I feel like that I have to be a puppet master pulling the strings, and if I don't pull the strings, you won't move. Why not try to be a little bit more, a little bit more personal? Amen. So I poured out my heart to you. And I thank you for the time that you have devoted to this, 
to listen, to log in, and to continue reading the website and uh, checking in on MeWe or Telegram and the newsletter that's posted at Through All Things. The link is on the bottom of every page on the, I think it's every page, right, on the website has a link to the newsletter of where we post the sermon notes every week. And we post the sermon notes on Telegram, and we post the sermon notes on Ewe, multiple places trying to reach out to people. We're always trying to reach out. I would that somebody would reach back for a change. Amen? If you've never contacted me, and you've been listening, or maybe you listened today for the first time, I would really appreciate, I can use the encouragement, and I want to know more of my brothers and my sisters, and I want to know them more in depth, more deeply. I want to know you as a person, not as a robot, not as a computer profile. We're supposed to be a family, a spiritual family. So I actually do care about what's happening in your life and whether you got hired or fired. I do care because I'm not just a pastor, I'm a brother and a friend. And I want to have a friendship relationship with each one of you and not just be somebody that screams and yells at me. Amen. And I, I, would want, I would hope that you also would want to know your brothers and sisters and what's happening in our lives on a daily basis. Amen. It doesn't take 40 hours a week to do this, or even 20 hours a week to do this, or even 10 hours a week to do this. Just a few minutes, just a few short minutes each day. If you would stop making excuses, I think that we all have just a few short moments a day to where we can try to talk with each other and share what's going on in our lives and, and talk and get to know the new people and encourage the new people and not just pray for them. That's being a lazy Christian. Just pray for them. We should be passionate, zealous workers of the kingdom actually talking to the new converts and getting to know them and asking about their work, their job, their family, their life. And that way we can pray better for them. Because you can't pray for somebody if you don't know them very well. You can just do just a very generic prayer if you don't know them. But if you come to know them, then you can add many more details and information to the prayer and not be such a generic prayer. And if you actually know that person and starting to get into a real friendship with them, then they become less of a computer profile and more of a brother, and you develop a heart for them, a real heart for them. Then you can pray and not only pray, but cry for them and have a passion for them. And that's what we need in the church so that we're not like Babylon where they just shake hands and say goodbye and they don't talk to each other for the rest of the week. Let us not be like Babylon that doesn't care for each other, that doesn't see each other during the week. 
They just shake hands and say goodbye and kiss my butt. I don't want to be like that. I want us to be an active church. I don't know why I waste my breath on this. I really don't know why I waste my breath on this. But maybe the next person coming into the church will be like a wildfire and bring some energy and actually follow through with this and start up conversations and then the next person, then the next person, then the next person. It only takes one person to light the match, start the fire, to begin the passion, and to start the interaction with one another. Amen. So I pray that you will be that person. Amen. All right, I'll let you go. I'll let you all go to the bathroom, let you go eat. God bless. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you all next Saturday for the live worship services next Saturday. God bless. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.